Our scripture reading is from Matthew 6, verses 1 through 6. This is found on page 811 in the Pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please take one. Take the one you got in your hand as a gift from us. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to the Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret, he will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, on Thursday of this week, uh, that just passed here, um, Facebook turned 12 years old. So it's hard to believe, uh, for me at least, that Facebook's been around for, for 12 years already. And uh, it has now one and a half billion uh, monthly users. And of those one and a half billion monthly users, a billion uh, sign into the site every day uh, and use it. And Look, I'm not anti-Facebook. Rachel uses Facebook. I use Facebook. We as a church use Facebook. It's it's a great tool. Um, But Facebook's prevalence, as well as sites like uh, Instagram and other social media, have become the newest outlet for a very old problem. And that is living your life uh, for an audience. Now, again, this isn't a new problem. Uh, Facebook has just simply made the audience larger um, that you can live your life before. The average Facebook user has two to 300 friends. Um, some have a lot more than that. And, and curating our lives uh, for an audience doesn't always even happen on purpose, right? I mean, we just tend to post the good stuff, the exciting stuff, the, the fun moments, not the, not the hard ones, and that makes sense. But if you're looking for a job or if you're applying to colleges, there's an increasing pressure to cultivate your personal brand on social media. And there's a lot of tools out there that can help you do that, lots of articles and sites that can help you think through that. Um, My favorite one is an article from uh, the satirical website, The Onion, uh, that they posted a while back. Uh, So these are just a few tips they give on how to help you cultivate your personal brand. First, they say, ask what really makes you, you. Is it your desperate need for validation or your complete lack of shame when it comes to self-promotion? They also add that that people love raw, unfiltered personalities. So try to meticulously cultivate the impression that you have one of those. Um, Remember that the internet is a meritocracy where the best, most innovative ideas win. So try to be as physically attractive as possible. And then patiently build your personal brand brick by brick with engaging posts and thoughtful content that is meaningful to your audience. And if that fails, start insulting celebrities and politicians. Right? So for all of us, there's a certain distance right, between who we want people to think we are and the people that we actually are. Um, so for example, I would love for you to think of me as a person who really consistently uh, recycles. Um, and I do most of the time. 
But the reality is a lot of times I'm lazy and we don't have glass recycling in Kansas City. You have to separate it out and take it to the ripple glass tub. And sometimes I'm just too lazy to do that. So I just throw it in the trash. So sorry, I see some heads nodding. Um, confession is good for the soul. I don't always consistently recycle my glass. But I want you to think that I do. Um, the distance between who I am and who I make myself out to be, who I let people think I am, it's called hypocrisy. And Christians get accused of being hypocrites often. And, and that's not always wrong. I mean, the people making those accusations are regularly right about that. Um, but you certainly don't have to be a Christian to be a hypocrite. And I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only uh, recycler who occasionally finds the, the trash can more convenient than the recycle bin. You see, most of us work really hard to look for ways to put the best us forward and make us really seem better than we actually are. It's not just a Christian problem. It's, it's a, not just a 21st century Facebook problem. It's a, it's a human problem. And it's one that Jesus addresses head-on in the Sermon on the Mount in these passages that we had read for us this morning. He calls us all out on this hypocrisy. And we're continuing to look at the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament, which is the second half of the Bible. There's, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're biographies of Jesus' life. And they are designed to teach us who Jesus is, how we can know him, how we can live life as he has designed it. And we've been spending time in Matthew. In the last few weeks, we've been in a part of Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount. It's some of Jesus' most well-known teaching. And it takes place on the hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee. There's a large crowd gathered around, and Jesus is teaching them. And sort of underlying all that Jesus is saying is kind of two implicit questions, and that is, who is the good person and what is the good life? Who's the good person and what is the good life? Last week, Jesus made it excessively clear that just obeying the rules, even if we do that really, really well, isn't enough to make us a good person because in the midst of that, our hearts can be absolutely rotten. And this week, in the text we're looking at, Jesus sort of takes this and, and turns it and he has us look at the other side of the same coin. Not only are our bad things worse than we thought, even our motivation for the good things we do is often self-centered and self-serving because I want to feel good about myself and others to feel good about me. And I'm sure all of us have had a moment like this, right? I mean, where we, we blind copy the boss on that email we send late at night so they know we're up working really hard for the client. They, the last thing they needed it was another email in their box. But here's what Jesus gets at this morning. And, and this may catch you off guard a little bit, but if you want to live the good life, if you want to live the good life, your life needs secrets. If you want to live the good life, your life needs secrets. Now again, that may catch you off guard because you think, wait, wait we're not supposed to have secrets, right? Secrets aren't, aren't a good thing, are they? Well, actually, sometimes they are. Because some secrets, the right secrets, are really good for your soul. Your life needs secrets. Things that we pursue and do for only one reason. Because God sees them, and that's enough. Now, I know that may be a tough sell for some of us this morning, and so we're going to spend some time looking at this, unpacking it a little bit, uh, through three questions. First of all, why 
do we need secrets? Secondly, what does the secret life look like? And then finally, how do we embrace it? So, so why do we need secrets? What does the secret life look like? And then how do we begin to embrace this life? So let's jump in here. Why do we need secrets? Well, quite simply, we need secrets because we have an audience problem. We're obsessed with the opinions of other people. Even if you don't think you are, there's someone or some group of people that you're, you're dying to have their approval. And meanwhile, the opinion of the one who matters most, he's always watching And he sees not just our good deeds, but he also sees the reasons behind those good deeds that we're doing. He doesn't just see the act, but he sees the motivation behind it. And this is where Jesus gives a warning. He says in verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus starts off with strong language that he says, beware, watch out. You're not expecting this. That's kind of the the idea, beware, because this is so dangerous. And Jesus is going to describe, in some examples that he gives, he's going to describe the kind of person that we would admire, the kind of person that we would applaud, the kind of person that has their lives, their life together, that is doing the right stuff. And honestly, the kind of people that if you've been a Christian for a while, if you've been doing this Christian life for a long time, the kinds of things that you probably spend time doing. And everyone culturally around Jesus would have said loud and clear, this is a good person living the good life. And Jesus is about to say, no, not actually. It's not that hard to deceive other people. And it's actually even easier to deceive ourselves which is why Jesus gives such a strong warning here. That's the real danger, to think that I'm a good person. Everyone says so. People are always thanking me and telling me of all the good things that I'm doing. Well, not everyone. And you may be thinking, now wait a second. Just a few verses back, didn't Jesus say we should do our good deeds before other people? This is part of that salt and light thing. Didn't we talk about that a couple weeks ago? Jesus did say that, but it's all about motivation. Jesus isn't contradicting himself. He's bringing it back to the heart, which is what really matters. Why are you doing the things that you're doing? And Jesus calls the person in the examples that he's going to give, in every instance of the three examples he's going to give, he calls them a hypocrite. Now, that's a common word for us, um, but Jesus was probably the first person to use that word as an insult. Um, because in, in Jesus' time, hypocrite was just, it was a Greek word for actor, someone who performed on the stage. And Jesus grew up in Nazareth, not far from a theater uh, where plays were performed and stories were told. And so he probably saw hypocrites, actors who did this, people who played a part. That's what the word meant. And while that is fun and entertaining on stage, it's disastrous in life. Philosopher Rebecca de Young um, points out that in the history of the church, this, this vice was known as vainglory. You see, glory, good kind of shorthand definition for glory, is goodness on display. Glory is goodness on display. And so glory goes wrong, glory becomes vainglory when there's a mismatch between the glory that's being given or sought and the actual goodness 
that's there, when those things are mismatched. And she writes this, glory goes bad when we desire it for the wrong things or for the wrong ends, for the wrong reasons. And those things or ends are empty. Empty means vain. That's that idea of emptiness. Those things or ends are empty of the goodness that matches the glory they're given or the glory we want them given. The glory here is a veneer. It's just on the surface. It does not have the requisite substance of goodness beneath it. Isn't that a great line? The requisite substance of goodness beneath it. So in the end, not only are we enslaved by the opinions of others in this kind of vainglorious life, but we also miss out on the real reward from the Father, which is why my life, your life, needs secrets. We have an audience problem, so we need secrets. Okay, so this is still maybe a little bit foggy, and that's okay, because Jesus goes on and he gives us three different examples to help us understand what he's talking about. So what does the secret life look like? He talks about giving, praying, and fasting. And back then, those things, giving, praying, fasting, those were the pillars, those were the staples of of a good life, of a religious life well-lived, of a good person. And Jesus says, when you give, when you pray, when you fast, and and note he says, not not if you pray or if you give or if you fast. He's assuming we're going to be doing these things. With each of them, he really says the same thing. And you see it in verse 2. It says, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, Jesus says, they have their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now again, as Jesus often does in the Sermon on the Mount, he's using hyperbole here. Obviously, we're going to know what our left and right hand are doing, but the point is this, that you can, should be generous, give generously, and also know that your motives for that can go south so quickly that it's better to do it quietly. It's better to do it anonymously. It's better to do it secretly. Be sneaky with your generosity. It's, it's just much safer for your heart that way. And then he gives us the same thing about prayer, and he gives two examples. Not only can we try to impress others with our prayers, and Jesus talks about that here, we can also try to impress God with our prayers. That if somehow we say the the right things, or we pray long enough or or hard enough, that then God will give us what what we want, that he has to sort of give us what we want. It makes it more like a a magic spell than a conversation, more like a, a formula than a real relationship. And Jesus says, this is, this is ridiculous too because the Father already knows what you need. He already knows what you need. So instead, Jesus gives us a model prayer, the Lord's Prayer. And he isn't saying that we shouldn't pray publicly. But he is saying that we can't do it simply to be seen by other people's people or to try to manipulate God into giving us what we want. 
And last, Jesus gives us the example of fasting. Maybe this is a bit unusual for some of us, though it's a really effective discipline. If you've not engaged in it, I encourage you, um, even kind of the Lenten season is often a time when people fast for things. So what what is fasting? Well, it's just giving up something you don't have to give up. So you don't fast from sin. You just get rid of sin. Um, But fasting is giving up something you don't have to give up, good things, for a time, for a purpose. So you can fast from TV or media or food or sugar um, as a way of helping you to understand things that you're finding satisfaction in other than God. Fasting slowly breaks us of our idols, our addictions. It, It forces us to rely on God alone to fill us up. Um, It helps us to realign our appetites and our affections. Um, It's humility. It's repentance. But just don't brag about it. That's Jesus' point. As if somehow it makes you so great. In fact, fasting is a demonstration that, gosh, I need help. It's it's not about how great you are. It's like, I got to get some things realigned in my life. And so Jesus says, when you look Or when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and their fasting so that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward, Jesus says. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. Your Father who is in secret will reward you. Now, Jesus includes these particular three examples because they were a really common part of the religious life of the people that he was talking to. But he's not trying to give us an exhaustive list of things here. Uh, Any good deed can be abused, can be done for the wrong reasons. Anything can, can make us look better than we really are. And so what else... Might you add, as I was thinking about this, I realized how often uh, I'll do something around the house and then say to Rachel later on, if she's been out, hey, did you notice I got the kitchen cleaned up? Or uh, did you notice I got the, the trash all taken out from the house? And the reality is, and I'm convinced most of the time we do this, we don't even realize we're doing it. And I think even those moments, I'm not saying like, I need to make sure she notices. It's just a force of habit. Oh, did you notice? It's not like I'm consciously saying I want the attention, yet we deceive ourselves into building our image. When we do it to be seen, we get what we're looking for. We get the reward we're pursuing. So that pat on the back, a warm feeling. And look, if that's the only reward that you want, that's the only thing you're looking for, then you've got it. But if you're looking for a better reward, if you're looking for God himself to say, well done, then your life needs secrets. Your life needs secrets. I don't know if you've ever read the the classic, uh, the picture of Dorian Gray. And uh, I don't read a lot of classics. Um, Sorry for the English teachers in the room. Rachel feels your pain. She loves the classics. I haven't read that many of them. But I read the picture of Dorian Gray um, a couple years ago, and it had such an impact in my life. If you don't know it, the story of Dorian Gray is about this, this man, Dorian, who makes essentially a deal trading his soul for endless youth and beauty. And so on the outside, even as he goes on throughout life and gets older, he always looks perfect. And every Everybody loves him. He's the life of the party, the admiration of all. Everybody wants to be Dorian Gray. But unseen, unknown on the inside, he's consumed with greed and lust and deception and betrayal. And there's this picture of him locked away in his attic that shows all of that. The emptiness, the guilt, the shame, even as out, outwardly himself, he remains ideal. 
but on the painting you see it, the twisted, the monster that he's become inside, haunting him till he's to his death. See, Jesus is showing us another way because I don't want, I hope you don't want to end up like Dorian Gray. Just a shell, a, a personal brand with no real substance, glory with no real goodness. Nor do I want to end up enslaved by the opinions of others, living constantly by the, the opinions of a million critics. I, I realized in the first service as I was preaching this sermon, I was concerned. It was like, this is how this happens. I was concerned. I was like, I wonder what these people are thinking about this message about living before an audience of one. And it happens so fast. And so how do we actually embrace this life of secrecy, the secret life? Well, first step is this, and that is to repent of your good deeds. And, and you did hear that right, repent of your good deeds. And I know that seems counterintuitive because it, it is counterintuitive, but this is Jesus we're talking about, and he is building an upside-down kingdom. That's the, the part of Matthew we're calling this section the upside-down kingdom. You see, every religion in the world will tell you to repent of your wrongdoings, the bad things you've done, but this is where the gospel, where Christianity is fundamentally different because Christians not only repent of their wrongdoings, but also of their right doings. Christians repent of all the wrong reasons they've done all the right things in their lives. Christians recognize that, that underneath their wrong and their right doing is a root desire to be in charge of their own life, to try to be our own savior. And Pastor Tim Keller, I think, explains this better than just about anyone else. Listen to carefully what he writes. To truly become a Christian, he says, we must also repent of the reasons we ever did anything right. Pharisees, hypocrites, only repent of their sins, but Christians repent of the very roots of their self-righteousness too. He continues, when you realize that the antidote to being bad is not just being good, you are on the brink. And if you follow through, it will change everything, how you relate to God, self, others, the world, your work, your sins, your virtue. It's called the new birth because it's so radical. Jesus began his ministry with a single word, repent. Not repent of your bad things, not repent of your, repent comprehensively of everything. We turn from bad and we even confess the brokenness behind the good. And we are actually that messed up as people that even the good things we try to do get twisted because we so often do them for the wrong reasons or for the approval of other people. But the good news of the gospels is that the grace works even in the midst of that. So repent of your right doings, your good deeds. Second, then live before an audience of one. You see, every one of us is living and dying for the approval of all kinds of people, right? Our parents, our boss, our friends, our coworkers, our ex-boyfriends, girlfriends, our children, our customers, our classmates, our congregations. Jesus says, beware of your practicing your righteousness before other people to be seen by them, by those people. See, so much of our energy goes into impressing other people. But the good news of the gospel is you don't have to be your own public relations person anymore. You don't have to do it because Jesus has already approved of you. He has done that work for you. 
mean, you can't please all those people anyway, right? Because how often does, does disappointing the boss mean getting it right with a client or vice versa? You make the client mad, but you do the right thing for your boss. Or, or kids, how many times does he, do you have to disappoint your friends to improve your, or in order to have your parents approve of you? Right? You, you can't live before all those audiences. We need an audience of one. And so here's the next step to help us break that habit of living for the approval of others. And it's, it's called the discipline of secrecy. You see, in secrecy and in solitude, what we're doing is we're denying ourselves an audience. We're denying ourselves applause. All that, that, that Facebook brings, the likes and the comments. And the harder this is for you, the more you need it and the more often you need to step into those disciplines of, of secrecy and solitude. So, so actually try this out. Maybe even this afternoon, do something good today that, that no one will ever give you credit for. That may go entirely unnoticed by everyone. Something small. Maybe it's, maybe it's just picking up some trash in your neighborhood that you see. Maybe it's starting a load of laundry without asking later on, hey, did you notice I got the laundry going? Or maybe there's a need in your community group that you can address anonymously or a project or work at school that just needs to get done. A note of encouragement that you could send anonymously, an act of kindness. I know my life needs more secrets. And it's possible that in those moments that not another human being will ever notice them ever. And that's okay. And we can't live with that many audiences anyway. We need an audience of one. Our Father in heaven who sees what is done in secret and in public. And who always knows our true motives. Even when others judge and misjudge us. Now, at this point, I can imagine some of you may be thinking, okay, Bill, I, I, I get it. I know other people are terrible critics, but the last thing I want is God as my audience because he's holy, he's perfect, he's, he sees everything. That's, that's the last thing I need. That's, that's too much to take. But again, this is where the gospel radically changes everything. Because in the gospel, we trust God not just as Father, God as Father, not just as another critic, he, he's not just another critic. He's not just another person whose approval we're seeking. He's a father who's already given us his approval, who already loves us deeply. Everyone else in your life will find fault, a place to critique and judge. But what's so amazing in these 18 verses of Matthew that we're looking at is this, and we, we miss it because we're so used to it, but Jesus hears this was a new concept for them. There's something revolutionary happening here. That 11 times in these verses, Jesus calls God Father. And, and not just his Father, not just the Father generically of Israel, but our Father, that we actually relate to him as Father. And again, we're, we're used to that by now. We've been calling God Father for 2,000 years. But Jesus introduces this way of relating to God as children He's reframing our understanding of the creator, the one who made us, the God that we rejected and ignored, the one who we're accountable to, not just as judge, but as our good and loving father. You see, God is, is easy to please, but hard to satisfy. God is so easy to please, 
like a dad watching his child learn to walk, taking those first kind of clumsy, wobbly steps. Of course, it's messy, but as a dad, you're just absolutely delighted. And yes, he does expect us to learn to walk better, to run, to jump, to live the holy life that he's called us to, but he delights in every attempt, everything done in faith. So this morning, Jesus is putting a choice before every one of you. That is, you can keep on living for your critics, or you can live for your good and perfect Father. You see, your earthly critics will take everything from you if you let them. They will never be satisfied. But God is already pleased. He's already given you everything. For Jesus died and rose again to love us and accept us and forgive us. And if you trust in him, he delights in you now. Do you believe that? If you're a Christian, God is delighted in you. And he gives us a better righteousness, one that we could never achieve on our own. And he promises this, that your father who sees what you do in secret will reward you. Our lives need more secrets. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how grateful we are that we address you as Father. That you've adopted us as your sons and daughters, that we inherit everything that comes to Jesus, that everything that's true of him and his life and death and resurrection becomes true of us when we enter into relationship with him. And that we have the approval of the only one who really matters without wavering our question in the gospel. Would you root those truths deep in my heart and in each one of our lives today? In Jesus' name, amen.